Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Tim Hepworth. Tim is a guide with Fly Fishing Bow River Outfitters and a co-host of Thursday Night Live. Please join us as Tim shares his fly fishing journey on the water and at the vice. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a quick announcement. Our friend Blaine Chocolate has launched a new round of online tying classes for March. He'll be teaching folks how to tie the hover changer and his famous cicada pattern. The classes will be held live on March 13th, and all the details are in the show notes. Space is limited, so don't delay. Now, on to the interview. Well, Tim, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, earliest fishing memory. Well, that takes me takes me quite a ways back. Um, I would say my my first memory wasn't wasn't a fly fishing memory, but was a fishing memory. Probably uh, being out in our West Country here, um, my dad uh, always carried me around, and you know, whether it's a true memory or if it's a memory of a photo, and I, I have in my mind of a of a day on the creek with dad, and um, you know, I they always show me the picture of dad carrying me around and whatnot. I'd have been about four or five years old, so. Um, I would say that's probably my very earliest memory when I think of fishing in general. So just a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, was that for trout, I assume? Yeah, that have been uh, for some just little uh, little brookies that we have in these, in these super small creeks out in our West Country. Very neat. When did you get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing? Well, you know, I, I did dabble a little bit as a, as a teenager, probably like 15, 16. Um, my dad always had a, a fly rod in up in the, in, in the attic of our of our shed, so it was always there. And I he never he fly fished a bunch when he was younger, but then he kind of put it away. I think when he had when he had kids, because it was just easier to teach the kids how to huck a, a baitcaster or whatever it might be. Um, but to be honest, the very first thing we ever used the fly rods for was for snagging gophers. Um, <laughs> we used that as a way of setting the hook, if you will, on on gophers when we were out snagging them. And, farmer's fields or whatever and uh, i figured well hey this is kind of silly there's there must be another purpose for this so uh a lot of my early early fly fishing was more you know again super small creeks um very little casting involved more dangling a fly and letting it drift through a little a little bend of a creek and catching little brookies and stuff and, um that was probably when i i first dabbled in it um and then really it wasn't until my early 20s that i started to to dive back into it we'll say and um, drink the Kool-Aid, if you will. And then it's been, uh, we've been on the dark side for quite some time. <laughs> yes. It's all downhill from there, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so as you've kind of progressed in your fly fishing journey from kind of being eaten up with it to, you know, tying flies and becoming a guide, who are some of the folks that have mentored you along your journey? Well, you know, um, I always kind of sit, you know, as cliche as it is, you know, people are put in, in your path when, when they need to be. Um, and for me, especially in my fly fishing career, um, it really has been exactly that, you know, early on, definitely my dad, like he raised me in the outdoors. We spent tons of time fishing, learning, 
Um, and you know, that's come full circle and I get to do a lot of these things with him now and I get to share time on the river with him and I've got him back into fly fishing and you know, that's, he's been probably one of my biggest mentors. Um, now as I kind of transition into, you know, the guide world and what that looked like. And really I only did that because I had to, you know, pay for my obsession. So <laughs> I knew I always wanted to, to guide. It was something that I, I had a, a bug for. I wanted to work with people. I love people. Um, but probably my biggest mentor and that would, would be someone who we'll probably talk about a little bit later, um, who I um, co-host Series Night Live with, um, Dana Lattery. And he's, you know, I actually took a guide school that he was teaching. That's where we first met. And um, yeah, he's really been the person who's brought me through, you know, always really shortcutted a whole lot of things for me in my guiding career and, you know, helped me really hone in my skill and um and that's who uh, who i guide with now and that's who we guide for um so yeah he'd he would definitely be my probably in this industry for sure my biggest mentor yeah very neat and so you know early 20s you kind of come back to fly fishing uh did was that about the same time for fly tying or did that come along later in your fly fishing career um you know i was i was probably back fly fishing for about two three years um and my brother, he, he had fly fished a lot when I was growing up and I just never really did it with him, but he always had this little tickle trunk of stuff where he kind of messed around time flies. And one day I just asked him, Hey, do you mind if I take this? Like there's this, you know, this craze about time flies, like what is it? And, um, you know, my, all my first time was, was designed for this trip I was doing out to uh, British Columbia for, um, for pink salmon off the beach. And so I had booked a guided trip out there and I wanted to, I thought it would be pretty cool at the time my first flies. Um, and that was just, just after my daughter was born. So, you know, probably five years ago now. Um, and that's really when I started tying and it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, as I'm sure you probably understand when you, when you start something and you really dive into it, it, it's amazing how well your, your skill can hone and quickly you're tying flies that are actually catching you fish. And then once that happens, it's like, whew, there's nothing else that can really compare to that in, in our world, in our realm. So um, I really, really grasped onto the, the tying because, I mean, let's be honest, depending on where you live, for us up here, um, you know, we can't fish really all year round. So you got to have something to kind of get you through the, the winter months and, and tying is a great, a great way of doing that. It just feels like it's still the same community of people. Um, you know, it's just not necessarily on the river. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're spoiled down here um, in the mid-Atlantic, and we fish uh, 12 months a year for sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, February, and it was in the 60s here today, so uh, we're spoiled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how that translates, but today was minus 36 um, with the wind chill in Celsius, which is it is nippy, a little bit too cold to be having wet hands outside for sure. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so, you know, <laughs> what was the first vice you tied on? Oh man, the very first vice I tied on would have been a vice that came in a Wapsie starter kit. So if you're familiar with those, they were like that C-clamp. Um, you know, there was no rotation on the, the head of the vice at all. It was literally just a lever you pulled. And sometimes it kind of held your hook and sometimes it didn't. Um, <laughs> that was, that was the very first vice that I ever, I ever tied on, um, which was, which was great. I mean, it was a, a great entry into, you know, what tying was going to be. And now I look back on it now and I definitely understand that I probably could never return to that vice, but you know, great starting point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you really, to be as accomplished as you are in the tying space, you haven't really been tying that long. Uh, who are some of the folks that have influenced your tying? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, to be honest, the world that we live in, it's information is so easily available. Um, I didn't have a lot of people around me that were really into tying like I was. Um, actually, to be honest, I didn't have any. No one else really had the bug like I had it. And so I was really just reached out to the internet. Um, and without them really knowing they had any influence on me, probably one of the, the greatest influences would be Tim Flagler. Um, so he does Tightline Video. It's his YouTube channel. I learned so much from him right from the very beginning. Um, was watching his stuff, and it really brought me a long ways. Um, Flatfish in the Ozarks, um, Brian. He's, I mean, he has been a great dude to interact with, anyways. But I learned a ton from him when it came to tying streamers. I kind of had that bug pretty much exclusively for a couple of years, so I was tying lots of that. And um, and then now, as as you know, I've kind of got to the stage that I'm at in my tying career. Now I'm by no means any type of expert. Um, I've leaned on a lot of people around me to, to teach me new things and kind of fun part about the community that we're in is people are pretty willing to, you know, to, to share ideas or tips or tricks or whatever. And as we do the same with them, it's, you know, the community kind of comes together for you and it, they can bring you a long way pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. So you've, sounds like you've sampled lots of different types of flies. Do you have a preferred style that you like to tie if you could, you know, had to pick? Yeah, I guess if I, that, and that's probably changed quite a bit for me. Like a lot, I would say if there's a, a natural progression, a lot of people would start by tying very simple nymphs or very simple streamers and kind of maybe go to head over to some dry flies and dabble a bit and maybe eventually get to streamers. Um, I, I actually pretty much started exclusively tying streamers. Um, I kind of moved from really simple ones into, you know, the Kelly Gallup stuff, all those really fun, crazy looking bugs. Um, I love to fish and love to tie them. And that's probably still where my heart lies. And when it comes to tying, I love, I love the creativity you can put into them. Um, but as I've been forced to, especially in, um, you know, as far as our show is concerned, I've been, I've been forced to, to get a lot better at a lot of different other things as well. And I've really enjoyed tying dry flies. Now it's, it's a super fun thing. You know, we all love fish and dry flies. So it's, kind of has that same feeling when in the tying sense it's just knowing what you're creating and how that fish is going to eat that fly you can kind of get geeky on them so um yeah i would say streamers are still probably number one but dry fly is uh, coming in the full second these days yeah there you go do you have any pattern recommendations for the bow or the surrounding streams in your area yeah well i mean you know the bow is is quite a beast uh, as far as the river is concerned but um in my opinion you don't have to get super geeky on flies in the bow. Uh, it, it's, I would say it has a lot more to do with the confidence that you fish your flies with uh, and, and more understanding where the fish are. But, you know, I would say probably, you know, depending on the season, you got leeches. Leeches are always good. I wish I didn't have to say it, but the red wire worm here is absolutely deadly. Probably more fish are caught on the bow on a red worm than, than anything else, um, which some days from the guided perspective can really save your day. Um, Dry flies, we, we fish a lot of, if we're fishing actual dry flies, um, or trying to get on a hatch of some kind, we're normally fishing, um, a caddis of some kind, or later in the season in September, we'll go to blue wings. Otherwise, what we would call drives would be our big foam stuff. So a good portion of our summer is tied up with, um, using either a, a stonefly pattern or, or hoppers. And that's kind of where, 
we love our, our, our big bug season. So a lot of our dry flies are fished that way. Sometimes in tandem, you might fish like a, you know, a hopper with a caddis or something like that as well. Um, but that's kind of where we focus, focus our attention as far as bugs are concerned. And then our surrounding areas, I mean, our Eastern slope of the Rockies here are, 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 I mean, we're spoiled. We know that it's, it's an amazing, um, fishery, which we're working hard to protect right now. And, you know, it's, a lot of cutthroat trout fishing, bull trout fishing. So you might be chucking big bugs or like big streamers for, uh, for the bull trout, but the cutthroat is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they're not a difficult fish to catch. Um, cause there's times where they make us all look pretty bad, but they don't have as long or as many months a year to really eat because the rivers freeze over quickly, um, in the winter and they don't thaw until quite late. So they're an active, active fish. So we, you know, fishing them with emerger patterns, fishing them with hopper patterns, stoneflies, they have a lot of stoneflies out in the mountains. Um, so they see them a lot. We don't really have to, it's not like on the bow where we have kind of just a couple of maybe three weeks of a heavy stonefly hatch. You'll have, you'll see stoneflies all year out in the mountains. So we fish a lot of golden stone patterns and, um, kind of a variety of everything. I wouldn't say it's a lot different from other river systems throughout the world. Uh, just, you know, just kind of learning to adapt with the fish as they feed differently or change. Uh, also, a green drake is a big one that we fish on the mountains because we do have some amazing green drake hatches that happen. So that's a real fun bug to fish too. Uh, very neat. And I know uh, you currently, uh, you tie on a Norvice and we, we already established you probably started tying on about a 40 or $50 uh, clamp vice on your table. Tell us, <laughs> tell us yeah. about, yeah, tell us about your migration to Norvice and kind of what attracted you uh, to the Norvice platform? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> vices is always a, it's a big question we're asked about a lot and it's, there's not really any right answer when it comes to a vice. Um, what, what I would say is you need a couple things. In my opinion, having a rotary function, that doesn't mean a true rotary inline vice like the Norvice, but having the ability to rotate your fly is absolutely essential as well as you need a vice that has good jaws. If your hook moves in your jaws, chuck it. It's just not worth it. Save your money, buy a, buy a vice that can hold your hook. Um, I really, like I said, started with that very basic vice. Um, I've moved through, I've tied on a, a very wide range of not only name brands, but um, price points and, you know, everything from the Peak Vices, Stone Foe. There's a lot of great vices out there. I love my Regal. still own a really nice Regal I use a lot. Um, but the progression to Norvice, it, it's it's kind of one of those scary things. And because if you start tying on one, you're going to find it really difficult to ever go back to anything else. Um, and why I say that, and it's not a lot of people think, well, I, I'm not a commercial tire, so I don't need a Norvice. Like, well, I, I disagree. That's a Norvice isn't just for commercial tires. Yes. It makes ease of tying. The design of an inline rotary system is, I mean, it's amazing that the vice simplifies things for you. It makes your life a lot easier. Um, the bobbin that it uses is also just, um, you know, I, I will never be able to tie without a, uh, an automatic bobbin anymore. Like I'll always use one just because your style of tying changes as you adapt to these new products. And, you know, I've, like I said, I've taught on a lot of different vices and what actually brought me to Norvice was, is actually just happenstance. I was actually at a garage sale and somebody was selling one. I didn't even know what it was at the time. Um, this is probably three and a half, four years ago. I mean, I'd heard of it, but never really seen them. And it was a decent price, so I bought it. Didn't really know um, much more about them. And as I started tying on it, um, you know, I just really drew a love for the experience. 
at that time I had almost kind of faded away a bit in tying and I was not loving it as much anymore. And I was for whatever reason, but that just like brought it back to me in a whole new light. And, uh, you know, tying on that, like you said, a system, it really brought a lot of joy back to, to tying for me. And I really haven't put it down since. And, you know, my relationship with Norvice now has grown, um, in our, in the show that we, we run as well, they're a sponsor of, and you know, they're, they're a great company. They're quite, you know, they're becoming a lot more progressive. They're changing some things. Um, they're listening to feedback, which is, you know, that's an exciting thing from someone who's a, who's a tire because we suggest things and things get done. It's, it's also, you know, it's a good relationship to have. So Norvice is, is a system. Um, the ease at which it allows certain things that we do in tying to happen is really the attraction for me. And it's just, I don't know. It's one of those things that, like I said, it's kind of hard. I don't like to show people who don't want to buy one because <laughs> if they tie on it, likely they're going to want to try to buy one at some point. And they're not, they're not an inexpensive vice for sure. They're probably one of the more expensive, um, especially for us as Canadians to get up here because we, we pay a lot of duty and stuff and all the shipping and whatnot to get them up here. But yeah, they are a pretty, a pretty cool little rig. I'm really enjoying tying on them. Yeah. And, and to help people who are not familiar with the platform, I guess you mentioned the automatic bobbins, which is really kind of handy because they're, I guess, spring loaded so that they, um, it makes it a whole lot easier for to basically to get thread off. But I mean, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the inline jaws and the mass and kind of how much easier it is to rotate a Norvice compared to other rotary vices. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the Norvice is, I mean, regal revolution vice, they would say it's an inline rotary vice. I, I don't disagree with that statement, but it's not a true inline rotary fun- functioning vice. And what I mean is, when I turn and I spin the Norvice, it's going to spin for a good 30 seconds on its own. The hook, when placed properly in the jaw, is perfectly in, in line um, with the with the system itself. So you don't have any wobble or, or bobbing in the in the hook itself, which is you know pretty essential when you're actually using a rotary function. Um, now, understanding um, what makes it so good is there's, there's there's ball bearings in there. That's what keeps it smooth. That's what allows it to spin quickly and when you pair that with um, with the bobbin that they have, and, and you're right, it, it's it the bobbin itself. You can pull thread off, um, and you can put your bobbin back to your thread, and it, and it it retracts it, so it pulls it right back into the bobbin again. So, um, you know, you're never going to have that problem of you're 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 spinning your um, your your thread around the hook, and you need to now reach down and, and start taking some thread back on the bobbin because it you pulled too much out or whatever. It's always just going to retract. So it makes your, your ease of tying quite a bit easier. And then what is kind of the, the system is you have the vice on one side and you have a bobbin cradle, which is, um, I had never really used a bobbin cradle before. It's just something to hold your thread out of the way, hold your bobbin out of the way. And so that's an integral piece of the Norvice. So every time you do something, you go, you set it over there, you can spin your materials up, bring your bobbin, because now when you take your bobbin off your cradle, it comes right back to your hook, retracts all that thread. So like we said, it's a system. Um, it really does work well together. It's not something that I would want to maybe, you know, throw a different bobbin on and tie with because it just isn't going to be the same. You tie as a system. Um, not sure if that explained it well enough without a visual, but um, yeah, that's kind of the how the system works. Yeah, and folks can always go over to their website at uh, vice.com and they can certainly get a visual. And, you know, obviously, you know, Tim and Tyler put 
put out a ton of stuff uh, on their Facebook channel and their YouTube channel so people can kind of see it in action. You know, talking yeah. to yeah to people that have made the transition either to tie on a Norvice or another rotary vice. Why don't you talk a little bit about you know ways to make that transition easier? Because I mean it's you know, it's one of those things you get these habits when you tie and like the idea that you have to reverse the way you, you know, you spin versus the way you put material on by hand and all those little things. How did you kind of get over that hurdle? Yeah, honestly, it it really wasn't even a a thought process. It just happens. You know, um, when you start on something new, it's exciting anyways. You're, you, you know, there's, there is true techniques on an orbice and, um, you know, Norm, the, the guy who created the, the vice system, um, he's no longer with us, but he has, you know, on Norvice's website, they have these videos of him and he's teaching, you know, these techniques and those techniques are, um, only really can be done on a true inline vice like the, like the Norvice. Now you don't have to use those when you tie on it. You can tie on it just like a regular old vice. And what it does is just give you the ease of doing your fly by the rotation that you get or setting your bobbin out of the way. Like it really, when I first started tying on it, I spent probably a year before I actually really used any of the true things that were designed for the Norvice as far as the, the techniques and stuff, because I was just enjoying time, didn't need to. And then once you start figuring out a few of these tricks, you just, it comes pretty natural because you're now you're like, Oh, this system, it really has um, the ability to function a lot better than a, than a standard vice or better or we'll say differently. And so you can just, you just adjust to it real quick. Um, I haven't met anybody who's transitioned over to a Norvice that hasn't, that has found a struggle with it. Um, you know, the biggest struggles are like, how do I put the thread in the bobbin? Cause it's a, you know, it's a different style bobbin. There's things like that that take a little bit to get used to. Um, but once that little bit of hurdles cross, most people, I don't know anyone who's ever tied on one that's gone back to another vice full time. They might use multiple vices, but I don't think anyone would ever drop it off of their, you know, their list of vice to use. Yeah, got it. That's a really helpful overview for folks. And I think we touched on this at kind of maybe at the beginning or might have been even before we started recording. You know, well, actually, you mentioned it. Uh, you co-host Thursday Night Fly Tying um, with uh, with your buddy, Dana. And I was curious, you know, how that all came about. Yeah, so Thursday Night Live Fly Tying. Uh, I guess I'll give you a little overview of what it is, kind of what we're about, um, you know, why we're doing it, you know. We're in our third season um, currently, and how it started was, was for a couple of main reasons. Um, first off, we really wanted to bring our local community together in the off season. That was really as simple as the, the goal was initially. Um, we met every week at a brewery in Calgary, um, and we, you know, we'd have somewhere between fifteen and thirty tires that would show up. We would prepare all these kits of the two flies we were tying each evening, or or one if it was maybe a bigger a bigger streamer or something. And everybody just came together. You know, we drank some beer, we tied flies. We always streamed it live to Facebook for those who couldn't be there at the time. Um, and, you know, we always had lofty goals of reaching the world, really, is what we want. You know, we feel we have a pretty unique perspective on, on not just tying, but, you know, what our personal experiences are as a guiding outfit, as, you know, we want people to, to get to know us. And, uh, you know, it, it really has evolved. So, I mean, initially, like I said, we were just in the brewery and even up until about halfway through season two, that's, that was still what we were doing. Um, now obviously COVID has thrown all of us lots of change in the last couple of years. And, uh, so what that did for us initially is 
because the restrictions we had up here, we just could no longer meet in the brewery, um, which was a, was a hard one to take for us because that was our, you know, our main goal was to bring people together once a week, you know, you know, of all ages, kids, you know, women, men, everyone together just to tell stories about fishing, tie a few flies, drink a beer and just enjoy that, that camaraderie. And then when that was basically taken from us, um, we had to pivot and what we've pivoted into has become something really, really cool. Uh, so what, what that means is Dana and I are now shooting out of the studio. Um, so we're no longer going to the brewery, which is, has been tough, but we honestly haven't had the ability to even go back if we wanted to yet. Um, just because of the way the restrictions still are, but you know, what we do is we shoot live, live from um, a brewery or certain brewery from the studio every Thursday night. We go live at seven on Facebook and it also streams live to YouTube. And really what it's kind of turned into is much more of a, of a TV show. You know, we, we talk lots. It's super engaging with all the people that are, um, that join and ask lots of questions and that same community that we really wanted, that we really strive to, to create at the breweries. We've now created, in an online sense and which seems extremely appropriate for this, you know, time that we're living in. And it's really attracted a lot of people to us. And so this year, um, unlike the previous two seasons, we actually put together, which was more work than I can even explain <laughs> what, we're, what we put together these seasons. So we have 20 episodes um, this season, two flies per episode what we did is we put, uh, we tied each of those patterns once, put them in the kit, and then we gave enough material to tie each of those flies two more times. That they, the idea is that you do that along with us live on Thursday. Um, and then we packaged them up and we, and we sold them at a, um, for a price this year, and, and we were able to sell them basically all around North America. Uh, we didn't have, I don't know if we had any orders that actually went out overseas, but um, lots of the states and, and lots across Canada here. And we, we made 80 seasons and we sold them all out this year with, much more desire to have had more, which was um, overwhelming for us. We never expected that to be kind of what would happen. Um, but I think a lot of people have really picked up fly tying or have really got back into it and, and want something to, to grasp onto because of the time we're living in. And it gives everybody a little bit of sanity once a week. And for me, it's the same. Like I still look forward to Thursday nights just because, you know, I get to, uh, to virtually go see all these people and, and hopefully share share a good time with them hopefully that gives you a little a little overview yeah and it's really neat too because i think one of the things i noticed and it's probably a function of you guys being in a studio is you were able to really kind of crank up the the production quality not that it wasn't good before but it was just you know it's very different doing it kind of remotely versus doing it in a studio and you can certainly see that in the finished product now oh yeah like and we there's there's no two ways about it. That's, that's exactly what's happened. You know, we, we've got lots of, you know, we had lots of camera equipment. We, we bought more. We, you know, we've constantly been revamping every episode. Even we, we change things and we try to keep it fresh and make it, you know, extremely engaging for people who want to come and view. And we want it to be not only for the viewer, but also just for, like we said, that community. So having a platform in which people can interact, not only with us, but with each other through it um, has been, a huge change for us and it's going to be it'll be hard to replicate what we have now if we were to go back to a brewery and really the only way that we could is if we could create a studio in one and we're not ruling that out um but you're right the production value has really changed a lot and for the better 
So we're we're excited with how it how it turned out so far, and we're really excited to continue growing. We got lofty goals for next year, and are just you know we're happy to be able to to serve our community not not only locally but you know basically worldwide and have have been you know it's it's all the the secondary things that we're seeing come out of it. You know, a lot of people booked trips last summer because of Thursday Night Live, and they came and spent time on our on our boats with us and. It was such a great experience to be able to share, um, you know, all these mutual things with other people. And not only that, seeing seeing communities of people that watch out of even out of your area or other areas that, you know, those people have now met and are, are fishing together because of the show. And that kind of stuff is uh, obviously super rewarding for us because when we come back to what our, our true why was for starting, it's really, that's the most fulfilling thing we can, we can come, see coming out of it. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's neat too, you know, and um, I, I know I've had this experience with the podcasting stuff and you've probably had it too, where you're, you know, either kind of around where you live or you go to a show and people see you or they hear your voice and they're like, dude, you know, you're the guys. And um, it's really, <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's really neat to, you know, find that community of people and kind of support that. And, you know, to your point, uh, particularly for people that kind of live in truly, you know, four season places, you've got to find that way to stay connected to the sport that you love so much. Yeah, you really do. Cause if you don't like, it's just stuff that, you know, starts to fade away and, and we don't want that. We, you know, we have a mission Our and our mission is quite simple and that's to love people. And that sounds, maybe people think that sounds fruity or, or whatever, but when it comes down to it, people want to be loved and, and we're not afraid to say that we love people. We want to give them um, as much as we can within reason that we're available to give. And, you know, we're, we're a pretty vulnerable um, group. I think um, we, we try to say that a lot. Like, like I told you earlier, I'm not a, I'm not the best hire out there. I can put my hand up first and say that I got a long ways to go on that journey and we all have growth to do in a lot of areas. But I think if you create a vulnerable community for people to interact in, then they don't feel so intimidated when they come in and they're a lot more willing to, to try to grow with you and to, and to listen to what you have to say, because you're not going to critique them. You're not going to be hard on them, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think too, I think that's a really refreshing approach as well, where, you know, so much of, uh, you know, it's not just in fly fishing, it's in everything where, you know, the game now seems to be, how can we hack people's attention? and uh, get them to do something that they really may or may not want to do. And so, you know, taking that kind of, you know, other person first approach um, is really refreshing. I think it's, I just think it's what's missing, unfortunately, in a lot of what we see in every part of our lives. Uh, We just see a lot of me first mentality or take from people. And you'd be amazed that, how much people give back when you give to them first, you know, you provide something. It doesn't, doesn't have to be financial or monetary or anything coming back to you, but you get the same, you know, the same give back and the people that are willing to step up for you because you stepped up for them. And that's, uh, I don't know. I, it's what our model kind of is. And I, and maybe it's not perfect either, but I think it's a, a good start. No, absolutely. And, you know, that lets us shift gears a little bit into the guiding. And, you know, I know you guide for fly fishing, bow river outfitters and, you know, when in your fly fishing journey did you get the guide bug? Well, you know, this will, I'm going into my fourth season now, I believe, um, of guiding. And, you know, if you, a guy, like the word guide, that's a, it's a very interesting thing, you know, because 
really, it doesn't really matter how good you can fly fish. It, it matters how you communicate with people. Um, can you give them the experience on the water? Um, you know, do you enjoy helping people? Cause if you don't, I'm not sure why you would ever want to pick that up. And for me, I've always done, I've always been, you know, I in the crossover world, which I spent a lot of time and I was like, I was coaching in that. I love people. I love working with people. Um, and when I'm not guiding my full-time job as a paramedic. So I spend a lot of time seeing people at their worst. Um, and so what's super refreshing for me stepping into the guide world is that I was, I was starting to give people a really positive experience and allowing myself to be part of something that's really cool for them. So a good experience versus a, you know, a negative one. And being a guide is probably the most, one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. Um, to be honest with you, it's, it's a lot of work, it's hard work, it's, but it's not work at all. Uh, if that makes sense, it's just a really refreshing thing to go be able to do in the summer months. And yeah, it, it's a passion for sure. Yeah. And to kind of build on that, you know, and I totally get what you're saying where it's like you kind of, you happily work yourself to exhaustion because it is your passion. Um, but what, what do you think it takes for someone to be a good guide? Oh man, to be a good guide. That's, uh, again, a very big question because, um, I think what it, what it has to come back to is what is your purpose for guiding? Um, and if you go into it with the right purpose, you're going to, you're going to probably be a decent guide. Now what, I guess what, to clarify that a little further, there's, there's a few different types of guides you see out there. Um, if there's guides that are in it for the money, if that's why you're there, pick a different job because it's <laughs> not the most lucrative one out there. Um, so don't, don't pick it to make a bunch of money because that's our seasons are too short. That's not really what the, the goal of it is. Um, you know, we say there's, there's the, the, or the guide who just wants to wear the guide shirt, wants to, wants to have, the label on it, say I'm a guide, say I'm a guide, tell you he's a guide 10 times in every sentence. Um, if you just want to be a guide to say you're a guide, that's probably also not the right reason to be a guide. If you're there to, to serve people, to give them a great experience, to get some joy and fulfillment out of a day on the water, not only for yourself, but that you can give back to people, then you're there for the right reason. Um, you're not, you might not be the fishiest dude or fishiest gal out there. That stuff can be learned. But can you talk to people? Um, you're basically a therapist. You're on the boat with people, sometimes husbands and wives, sometimes you're in the middle. You never know what's going to happen on the boat. You know, sometimes you're between two top CEOs that are, you know, or that are signing a deal on your boat. There's lots of different things and the dynamics are constantly changing. So if you're not a people person, you're probably going to struggle a bit. Uh, And having that nice calm demeanor, you know, someone who's, you know, just there to help other people and want to guide and to coach and to teach. If that's your passion, chances are you're going to be a pretty good guide. If you're there to yell at people, there to get mad at people. Um, if you're only there to see the hero shot and to get that shot and put it on your webpage or your Instagram or whatever, eh, it might not be, uh, it might not be for you either. So I think to answer your question is as finitely as I can. Um, if you're there to serve people, you're probably going to make a pretty good guide. The skills can be learned, but that part can't be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always ask all of my guests that are fishing guides to share what they think the biggest misconception is people have about the life of a guide. About the life of a guide. Well, you know, I think up here we have a little bit different um, community in the guide. When the guiding sense will say, you know, we're, we're not Montana where, you know, you're you're on the river, you go back to the bar after you hang out with a bunch of other guide buddies and, and that's how it is. Like our communities are quite, I'll say, niche or clicky like there's 
there's multiple outfitters and not that we're, we are obviously all in competition, but it's not as much of a community as, as I've experienced when I've fished in other places. Um, so a misconception I would say for up here is that it's, you know, just that standard. When you think of a guide, you think of someone who's just living on the back of his truck and he's, he's going, he's living on the rivers or whatever it is all year long. Most people up here who work as a guide, um, they have other jobs. Like you, it's our season's not super long. We can make very good money while we're doing it. But for a lot of people, it's, you know, like myself, I'm a paramedic and I have, I work a schedule of two days on, four days off. So on my four days off in the summer, that's when I'm guiding. Um, for lots of other people, they're teachers. So they get two straight months off in the summer. Perfect. And they're guiding a lot of firefighters are guides as well. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of, let's say construction workers. who also guide because there's both of those things are busy at the same time. Um, but most people are going to have a second job, um, in this industry. And I think a lot of people think that if you're a fishing guide, you just hop around the world, jumping from Patagonia to wherever, you know, back to the to Belize and then up here. And then your full year is, is full of guiding. And, and maybe there are some people who, who, who do that, but I pretty much could promise you they're not family people. Um, because that just wouldn't be a sustainable thing um, to do as a, with your family. But, um, for us up here, most of us are all, you know, doing something else and our passion is, is our guiding and that's why we do it. Yeah, got it. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the history of FFBRO? Yeah, for sure. So, um, most of the guides who have come out of, or who guide for um, FFBR, um, kind of guided, have been guiding in other places first. We, a lot, a few of us guided to the same outfitter and we decided that we wanted to step out on our own. Um, now Dana, he had always, he's been guiding for, I believe, roughly 10 years in the bow now. Um, he's always had fly fishing and rail fritters. Um, he always had that company, but he was mostly, um, guiding for other outfits in, in the area and he would take some trips for himself through the, through the business. And then when we stepped out, it was an easy transition. He already had the business set up. Um, a few of us stepped out with him and we started, uh, yeah, guiding with him, which was a pretty big leap of faith, especially for some of us who were pretty early in our career and didn't have a lot of clientele already. But, you know, like we, kind of all the, the things that I explained when it came to Thursday Night Live and, and why we do that, it really translates exactly why we do what we do in the guiding sense. So we, we preach about loving people. We do our best to actually follow through on what we say. And uh, I think that experience has drawn a lot of clients to us. And, you know, we've been super blessed. We've been extremely busy for the last, even last summer, considering, you know, all of our clientele for the most part, 80% probably are American when our border shut down we really had to lean on our local clients and you wouldn't believe it, man. It was just like, you know, it took care of us so, so amazingly. And we stayed busy all summer and, you know, praying that that's what happens again this year. Um, so now that brings us to where we are now. And, and you know, fly fishing Bull river outfitters is, is a, is a, you know, yes, it's a company, but we're, we're trying to diversify a lot. You know, we have Thursday night live is a basically an offshoot of it. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of other things in the community. We, you know, we actually have done some pretty big film projects together. We had a film in, in I4 last year. Um, so like we're trying to just kind of be a diverse group and constantly grow and, and as a business try to, it's all kind of comes full circle and hopefully that draws people to us when it comes to booking trips and hanging out on the water with us. Yeah. Very neat. And, you know, uh... I guess that lets us to actually start to really talk about the fishing. And, you know, I would imagine, um, you know, I've been lucky to fish 
in you know Montana and Wyoming and Colorado, but obviously you guys are up up farther north, and so I'd imagine your season's a little bit shorter and looks a little bit different. Can you kind of walk us through kind of what your guide season looks like on the bow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you if you've fished in Montana, we're probably as close to any place as possible would be similar to Montana, although they they seem to be able to lengthen out their their shoulder seasons a little bit more than we can. Um, pretty much the very first trips we would take in a year, um, and understanding normally they're at a little bit of a reduced rate because they're shoulder season, um, and the days are a little shorter, but normally we'd start in about April, uh, to beginning of April, we, the fishing can be, can be really good on the bow. It's kind of pre runoff. A lot of our rainbows have actually taken off and they're gone, they're spawning. So it's a lot of, you do catch rainbows, but a lot of browns as well. Um, and then that kind of transitions us into May again, can still be good fishing, um, can be really, really top notch fishing actually. And a lot of people I think uh, miss out on that, but then we transition into what our, our runoff season is. And so we hit June and normally it really depends on what the runoff looks like and how much, you know, snow we've had the winter, all that kind of thing. But not that June as a whole is a write off, but we never really know exactly when in June our runoff is going to start or end. So really we get pumping good by like the beginning of July again. Um, and then July, August, September are going to be our, our core months um, for the guide season. We will guide up to the end of October, but um, again, October would definitely be our shoulder, our shoulder month, kind of like April, and May. Um, and October is, uh, our days get shorter, obviously, so we don't have as much daylight. So a lot of our floats kind of change as well. We kind of got to take shorter floats just because we don't even have enough hours in the day to be on the, of daylight to be on certain sections and such, so. Um, but that's pretty much our, our, you know, our guiding season. The bow does stay open to fishing year round and there is water in the city section that's open year round. Um, like open, I mean, doesn't have ice on it. Um, so there are some diehards who go out and fish, but we don't, we wouldn't take a guided trip that time of year just because we don't feel it'd be a, a fair thing to give to a client just because the fishing is super unpredictable in the, in the winter. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, you know, to just kind of help folks that are not uh, familiar with the Bow River, can you kind of walk us through the kind of the entire length and kind of tell us a little bit about the sections and maybe, you know, how the character of the river changes as you kind of move downstream? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, if we'll take it right up to kind of the head where we would ever start floating, um, a lot of people are quite familiar with Banff and Canmore area. Um, there are some floats that can be done up on that kind of top section. And probably the, the safest one though. And the one we, the only one we would really do is we, we get into a place called Exshaw and we, and we float down to a, to CB dam. Uh, now that, that section, it's very free stone. Um, the water is a lot different up there. It's not a lot of, um, you know, there's not a lot of big fish or a lot of smaller brown trout. Um, there's the occasional, um, the occasional lake trout gets caught out of that portion of the river and as well as bull trout are in there, but it's not a high, let's say a super high, um, numbers for large fish there. And we, we try to push people away from that unless they want to go for a scenic float. If you just want to go for a scenic float, that's a gorgeous place to be You're right in the mountains. But if you if you really want to get into the fishing and, and what's really good, we're going to, we're going to encourage you to go farther south. Now there is, um, there are some floats that can happen below like the big dam that we have in the river is called ghost dam. So below ghost dam, there's some floats that can be done kind of down towards the edge of the city. But now for us, we don't, we don't really fish much through that section. That's not, that's not where a lot of floats don't really happen in that section. Um, once you hit the city, we have multiple sections that start. So 
um, you can kind of fish the top end of the city all the way down to, um, so probably our most popular put on put in would be called uh, Glenmore in the city. And just in the last year, they've opened up two more boat launches above that. So now we have the availability to float down through the city section, like right through downtown Calgary, um, which is a really, really cool experience because you can literally be fishing. We could pull over at the cafe, go have, go have some lunch and come back on the boat if that's what you wanted or you could order pizza to the boat like whatever because you're right in town um the fishing up there can be really good there's some really big fish up there big browns still feels a little free stony though like it's it's the water is a little different color um it's not it doesn't fish quite the same now once you hit get down to to glenmore we're just below where the water sewage treatment comes back into the water so that's probably why our population of fish is so healthy below that is because, you know, the alkali comes into the water, helps the weeds grow, the bugs grow, and the fish get bigger, eating bigger bugs um, to kind of simplify it. So um, that's where we really start doing the majority of our floats. So we have Glenmore down to Fish Creek is a, is a stop off in town. Um, and then from Fish Creek, you can go down to Placement Flats. And now those can be broken up or you could go all the way from Glenmore to Fish in a day, or Glenmore to uh, Police in a day. And that's what we would consider our city sections. So once we get out of the city, um, placement flats is where we start. So we can go all the way down to a place called McKinnon. Or sorry, to McKinnon is our next stop. But we can go all the way down to a place called Carsland. Now in between um, placement flats and Carsland, there's a, a couple stop-offs. We have McKinnon. And then we also have a place called Jensen's. Um, and then we could go all the way down to the bottom. The farther you kind of get down, as you can imagine with a lot of rivers, it becomes a little bit different. Um, the water flow is a little different. The, you know, the bottom section for us braids a ton, and it gets a little bit slower moving water. Um, up in the city, it's still quite free stony, lots of grade changes, lots of gravel bars. And um, as you kind of get out of the city, it's more classic trout water. Um, you know, it does braid a bit, but it's a lot of fish in big grassy banks and you know there are gravel bars but not not to the extent that it is a little bit lower once it kind of braids out a bit and um everybody kind of has their favorite section and and certain years they do certain things to the river where you know um like they they shut down one of our launches um in september this year so we all had to change kind of what our sections looked like because we couldn't use that one um but yeah it, it changes um some people say they catch a lot more rainbows down at the bottom and i would tend to agree um, the farther you get down, I, I've caught more rainbows than I do brown. Um, and up in the city, you, you definitely see some amazing browns and rainbows mixed in as well. So it is quite a vast fishery. And sorry, that's a really long-winded um, description. But there's a there's a lot of opportunities for a variety of different floats, which is what's super unique, I think, about the bow is we just have a lot from being in a, a city of you know, over a million people where you could catch a trophy brown trout all the way to getting out of the city and seeing the beautiful scenery as well as get into some fish. So pretty, uh, pretty cool river system. Yeah. That's a really helpful description. And I know that you, uh, you also guide on the surrounding mountain streams and is that something that you kind of do say, for example, during runoff so that you can kind of guide in June or kind of how does that fit into your guide season? Yeah, so most of our that the mountain streams actually don't open till about June sixteenth. So it yes, it, it kind of can time quite well. But a lot of times, if we're if we've got runoff on the bow, we the water is also quite high out in the mountains because um, that's where it's all coming from. So there's times where 
it just there's overlap where you just can't guide for a period of a little bit. And just because we're in runoff doesn't mean you can't fish it. It, it. There's some really good fishing when the water's high and dirty, but there's times when it's unfishable when you got logs floating down and it's you know over the banks and that's just not a fishable time and not safe. Um, but the mountain streams, like I said, open June 16th, and, and that's when we really start to to spend more time out there, especially once the water starts to settle down. And they're they're very unique. We have a, a wide range of all all the way up and down the eastern slopes, the Rockies. You could drive north for three hours, and um, we have some guys who guide a lot farther north, up kind of where I live, and then all the way down to the, to the southern portion of the province. And wherever where our, our clients kind of you know, we give them a choice of where they would like to go, and we just kind of you know pros and cons of each area, and depending on where they live or wherever they want to go, and we all. You know, we try to accommodate that the best as possible. The mountains are really fun because, I mean, we, we do do overnight trips on the boat. Um, we, another super fun. We'll do a two-dayer and we'll camp in the middle. Um, but we also really like to do that on the mountains. It's a, it's a great way for us to get out and enjoy that that kind of experience too. And so doing a couple of day or sometimes we have people come up for a full week and we just camp out in the mountains with them for a week. And because we have so many different, you know, rivers, creeks, all this, we can just show them new spots almost every day. Um, which makes it pretty fun too. And to be honest, the bow is is a beast. And there's there's times when, as a guide, you want nothing more than to be able to get off the bow. It's been kicking your butt for three, four days straight. You, you're just happy to see a, a mountain day on the schedule. <laughs> you're ready to get out of that, get out of your boat, and go to go to the mountains for some serenity. Yeah, absolutely. And I also know you guys also guide for pike. Uh, how does that fit into your guide season? So pike is early. Pike is going to be basically right at ice off um, on our lakes, and you know that you can you can definitely do that right into June once we have, once our runoff is not doing so good. But you really want to catch those pike post spawn. They're they're spawning right when the ice is coming off, and then you're hoping to catch those big females. Normally they're they're larger than the males, and, you, and you're trying to catch them up in the shallows. Now once the summer heat comes on, they in our lakes, they go to much deeper water and it's a lot more difficult to catch them. Um, and I mean, we really don't like fishing for them in super deep water. It's tough. You're chucking big flies with heavy sink tips. It's not a lot of fun. So we really try to target them when they're, you know, somewhere in between two and six feet of water. And we've got a ton of irrigation drainage lakes that are kind of across the, um, the Southern Eastern part of our province. So we have lots of good opportunities there, even a little farther north into the mid area of our province. We have quite a few um, pretty good pike lakes as well. We do have some really good trophy pike fisheries and they're not, um, I don't, I would say it's not super well used by people because I think a lot of people that live here, grew up here, they kind of always fished with gear for pike and walleye and stuff. And so for them, it doesn't seem to have the same appeal as when you're fly fishing for, for trout. Um, but it's really enjoyable. There's a lot of days where you have super high number, humbered, sorry, high number days for you know for average size pike with the opportunity of you know taking a really a really good really good fish. So, um, but you're yeah you're right. It can definitely depending on the runoff. It, it's nice to be able to get out on the lake too, and that's one way to kind of keep us guiding as well. Yeah, it also lets you uh, do your streamer thing too, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about it, you know, a lot of times I always, if I'm pike fishing with Dana, I'm chucking the biggest stuff I can because I love tying it, you know, 14, 16 inches long. And yeah, they catch fish, but then he fishes with a three inch little clouser. He catches bigger and more fish than I do. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who's laughing more, but yeah, <laughs> I do enjoy it. 
Well, there you go. And, and to just maybe walk us through, you know, what a day on the water is, you know, with you or another guide at Fly Fishing Bow River Outfitters and kind of, you know, you've talked a little bit in the interview about kind of how your approach is different, but kind of talk to us about how that translates into a day on the water. Yeah, absolutely. So the one thing I'll say when you, when you book a trip with us, um, there is nobody in our group that guides for us that I would ever shy away from. We got such a good solid group of um, people that, you know, we're not a huge company. We don't have a ton of people. We try to keep it small because we want to, we want to give the best that we can. So we're not, we're not just taking on anyone that we can't. We want to, we want to keep it the integrity of the group and understanding what we provide for people is, is the highest quality. So when you book a day with us, what you're going to get. Um, so if you're in Calgary or you're traveling or whatever it is, uh, we can come pick you up in the city or you can meet us at the launch or we have a meeting point that we normally go to. We'll get you out on the water. Um, in your day, you have included, we provide lunch and all non-alcoholic beverages that you uh, that you desire for the day. And we, we you know, we'll accommodate whatever that looks like for you, allergies, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when you get on the water with us, we're going to, Again, just kind of depends on the, the time of year and the season, uh, what we're fishing. But, you know, we're going to spend somewhere between eight to 10 hours in the water. You know, we'll stop for lunch. We'll take some time. Um, we're, we're never in a rush to get down the river. You know, we try to, you know, and, and bring in the guides that we have on and training them. It's like understanding that, again, this is about serving people. So what they need is what you need. And we talk about expectations all the time. And the very first question I'm going to ask you when I get in the vehicle with you or on the boat with you is what do you hope to get out of today? And maybe that's not fish. And, and we're going to be honest with you. Not every day is a, is the best fishing day. Um, that's fishing. But what else can we do for you? Uh, you need to learn a little bit more about the double haul. Okay. Let's, let's do some casting. We'll pull over a good couple of places. It'll be good for that. You know, is it something you want to learn about some bugs, some entomology? awesome let's pull over we'll, we'll flip some rocks and we'll talk about it you know there's a lot more out of a guided day than just catching fish and yes there are certain clients that all they want is 20 inch brown and a 20 inch rainbow and when they get that they're happy but i find on the, on the most part um although we all love to catch fish there's a lot more that we can be utilized for ask me questions all day because i love to talk i love to teach let's let's help you get through today and you know hopefully teach you a lot of things um, so I think, and I'm not saying that when people book other people, they're not also getting that, but that's really what we're trying to portray to people is, you know, like I said earlier, we're a vulnerable um, group of people. We're not trying to say we're better than anybody else. We just think that, you know, we want you to know that we're going to serve you the best we can and give you kind of the best experience that, that's available for you. So um, when you book with us, I can promise you one thing, you're going to have a good day. The experience is going to be positive. I can't always promise you a <laughs> hundred fish, but you know, um, understanding that your expectations are real. We're going to have a good time. Yeah. It's amazing to me, you know, how, uh, reluctant people are to tell their guide what they really want to accomplish or get out of a day on the water. Which is, which is silly, really. I mean, you're paying a good amount of money to be there that day. Um, just, just be honest with us. Cause if, if, if it's something we can truly help you with, we want to like, that's, that's obviously a given. Um, I mean, I can say from my experience, I know when I booked my very first ever guided trip, oh, I was sweating bullets. I was like, oh man, this guy's going to be critiquing me and I'm, I'm never going to do anything right. And I'm super nervous. Like I almost backed out of the trip because I was so nervous about it. And so I understand that side of things, but just trying to explain to people, I'm not going to yell at you. I promise you that none of our guys are going to yell at you. That's not what we're about. 
Um, if you want that, maybe head south to summer warm because, you know, that seems to be a mentality down there. For us, that's not it. Yeah, go to Key West. They'll yell at you down there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And I mean, that's a whole other discussion in the guiding world. But I, I had the same experience. I've um, done some guided trips to Cuba, Mexico. I got yelled at in Spanish all day. I don't even know what I was being yelled at, but I was. I could assume it wasn't good. Um, what's the point in that? And we, and you know, we have guys on the Bow River who do the same thing. And I sit back and shake my head. I was like, do you think that that client wants to come back to you again? Are you going to ever have that return client if you've yelled at them? What's the point? Don't don't make them feel bad when they pop off that fish and it, that they watch that big, you know, twenty inch brown tail tail wave goodbye. Like, no. It, you know, reiterate to them what an experience you just had. You tricked that wild animal into eating your fly. Like, how cool is that? Like, emphasize those things because that's that's truly what it's about. We're not always going to get the fish to our hand. That's just that's just unrealistic all the time. But there's so much more that we could engage people and get them excited about. Um, so yeah, I mean, just it's just silly, but. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 save that for the next time you come back. Maybe you can come back with Dana, and we can talk about that for an hour. Um, but but that whole yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that whole philosophy. I mean, is it something? Because um, I also know that uh, you guys offer a spring and a fall guide school. Is that something that um, you're kind of naturally wired that way, or slightly naturally wired that way, or is it something that you really kind of picked up uh, when you met Dana in the guide school? Yeah. So basically I'm, like I said, I, I met Dana when I took guide school from him. So it's been this evolution now where we're, where we've taken and we've built, built the guide school that we teach through fly fishing board for outfitters. And, you know, really the reason that we're doing that, and we can be quite honest, like our industry in Alberta is not regulated and which sucks. We wish it, we wish that it could be because, you know, there's, you could say today, you could, I'm a guide. Okay. You're a guide. You're an outfitter. Go start a business. There's no accountability. There's no, there's nothing there to, to keep people accountable to what they're doing. Um, so what we, you know, kind of sticking to our philosophy, what we believe we can do for people is if we can train these people who are hoping to enter the guide um, industry right from the base level, you know, give them the fundamentals that we believe in, um, to hopefully give them just a little bit of a, you know, a step up to get into the industry. And our guide schools are, are, are uh, super awesome. We got six days of just lots of time on the oars, lots of some little bit of classroom time, but most of it's out on the water, you know, teaching etiquette, teaching things that we see broken every day at the boat launch or on the water. Just, you know, it's like, guys, like we feel like we could train a lot of people who are already in the industry, just these little things that would make everyone's relationship on the water better. Um, and so this guide schools have been, I'll be honest, we've pulled a lot of people out of the guide school to guide for us. We say, Ooh, that one's a keeper. We'll keep that one. You know, like people who are just, they fit the, they fit the glove that we're already in. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people who have taken our, our classes now have come out just feeling super confident about themselves. And we have people who are taking this that aren't even wanting to guide. Um, you know, they just from, you know, just wanting to come and spend six days hanging out, learning to row a boat to, you know, wanting a holiday and learning something different. You know, and that's, we're, we're here to train you into the guide industry, but there's people who are, who are taking it that are, don't really have a lot of intention of even guiding, but everybody comes, comes out of guide school with a, you know, a renewed perspective. So yeah, we've been super happy with how the guide schools have turned out. 
Yeah, it's interesting because uh, like guiding in North Carolina is not regulated and, you know, outfitters down here have a similar frustration. Um, you know, I know you've got people in your school that, you know, don't want to become guides, but what does your typical student look like that wants to become a fishing guide? Well, the typical student is, um, is just like I was. It's like, I don't know how to go. I don't know how to go from not being a guide to becoming a guide. So how do, how do I do that? Like, what do I need for gear? What do I need to invest in for a boat? Like, you know, what, what do I need to do to even break into the industry? And that's a, if you have no information, you just don't know. So I think the majority of people who come in, they're like, Ooh, I think I'd like to be a guide. And some people, once they get into the course, maybe realize that guiding isn't for them. Maybe it's not what they thought it was. Um, like I said earlier, maybe they thought it was going to be a super like above and beyond lucrative thing. They're going to make their millions. And, and then that would be their retirement gig. Um, we see a lot of people who are actually wanting to retire from other work coming to be a guy because now they're going to have the time. That's uh, you know that's a pretty kind of typical thing to see too. But I think most people who who are booking in the school, um, they have the desire to guide. They just don't know how to get started. Um, and you know, I think if it was like a regulated province, there would be very step by step process to break into the guide industry. Whereas because there isn't, a lot of people just don't know where to start. Like even from a business standpoint, how do I set up a business? How do I, um, you know, how do I go about getting insurance to keep myself safe? These are all things that we cover and try to, you know, from day one, step people through the process into eventually being on their own boat, either working for somebody else or working for themselves and, uh, you know, getting people in the water. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as we kind of start to kind of wind things down, I guess we're what we're probably, what, two months away from pike season starting. How does your guide calendar look for 2021? Uh, 2021. I mean, we, we definitely have stuff on the books, um, but it's, we're at kind of a funny stage. I think I, you know, again, there's all this unknown about our border being open or not. So if the border opens, we're going to be busier than we can handle. Um, and if it doesn't, we just hope that we are still able to be supported by our, our local clientele. Um, we always, we definitely have space in our, in our calendar still. So we, we look forward to hearing some people and, and be able to, uh, to get some, you know, get some new people on the trips and hopefully that border will open and we'll have some awesome American clients like yourself to come up and, uh, to visit with us. Well, well, there you go. And, you know, as, uh, before we go, why don't you let folks, I guess, know where they can, you know, find and follow, uh, fly fishing, Bow River Outfitters, uh, how they can kind of keep track of what's going on every Thursday night. And also, you know, we ought to let folks know where they can follow uh, you and your daughter on Instagram. Yeah, for sure. So um, our social media for Flyfish and Borough, um, Flyfish and Borough Outfitters, um, we're on Instagram as Flyfish and Borough Outfitters. On Facebook, it's the same, just Flyfish and Borough Outfitters. Um, our website is flyfishingborrower.com. Um, and if you go onto our website, that's the easiest way to book us. Uh, you can, there's a whole list of things in there. You can contact us with anything you might have a question about. You also can see information about our guide schools are on there. Um, and then Thursday Night Live is in there as well. So all of our videos from past tying weeks get cash on YouTube and we put links to on our, on our website as well. Maybe you just want some information about it. Uh, they to reach out or, uh, whether it's on our social media or on, um, through the website, we're always ready to answer questions. Um, for myself, my personal Instagram is at Timothy Hepworth. 
Um, and then the one you were just referring to, um, at Tim and Ren, is an account that uh, I started with my daughter a few years ago. Um, it's just super fun, lighthearted. It's uh, it's really just about all the adventures that I get up to with her, and you know, from hunting, fishing, all sorts of things. Um, her love is her love is definitely fly fishing, which I've been super blessed to, to you know, just be on part of the journey with her because she's uh, you know she's made she's renewed fly fishing for me too. She's kept it really light and really fun and. You know, the days where I don't want to go out necessarily, she pushes me to take her out. So, um, yeah, stay tuned on that account. You, I guarantee you'll see some uh, some fun content. So, Yeah, that's, that's super neat. It's funny because, uh, you know, when I fish with my boys, particularly when they're younger, it's interesting, you know, because you've kind of been doing your thing for a while to see the the world and the fly fishing world through their eyes. It's really pretty neat. I uh, just renews everything, right? You know, the things that we overlook every day on the river. You know, it's so fresh for them. They, the things that excite them are things that we should probably still feel excited about. And it's, uh, you're right. Seeing it through their eyes is, it just, it's like you're starting all over again and how much fun it was right at the start when everything was exciting. It's just, it feels just the same. Yeah. It's super cool. Well, you know, listen, Tim, I really appreciate you carving out an hour for me this evening. Uh, wish you the best of luck in 2021 and maybe we'll get to fish together soon. Take care. I hope so, buddy. Thank you so much. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out Blaine's March classes. All the details are in the show notes. Tight lines, everybody.